0: Drums, please! Jet West Right 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 Hello there, C-Node here, and welcome to Dopamine, the show that is basically an emotional processing plant. Today, I want to talk about, uh, really start what I think is going to be a three-part series about parentification, um, specifically emotional parentification, something that I've only recently learned about, and something that um, is uh, really hitting me pretty hard, um, so it's something that I'm not an expert in, so I will be referring to, and probably just straight up reading and commenting on a couple of articles that I've read or that I found that are really helpful and can be helpful to a lot of people around these topics of parental, uh, uh, parentification as it were. Uh, so parentification is in essence, in my words, the, role reversal between parent and child that the child either emotionally or like instrumentally has to take on the role of the parent in some sort of way. You've probably seen this in movies, uh, all the time, but there are millions of kids all the time experiencing a role reversal where they're having to take on more responsibilities, inappropriate responsibilities of the household in order to keep things functioning. Maybe their parents have checked out. Uh, Maybe there are emotional needs that the parents had uh, that were unmet that they've started to lean on the kids for. And that's what the emotional parentification aspect of it. So there's sort of the instrumental side, which is like literally doing chores and paying the bills and managing all of the household things and making sure all of that stays well and good while the parent kind of checks out. And the emotional parentification where the parent sees the child as someone to, as a, like a replacement for a therapist or deep emotional wounding conversations or even uh, spousal type of conversations in terms of uh, the care that a spouse would normally give someone. And sometimes this can happen when there's like a, uh, a divorce or like a big event where maybe one of the parents passed away and um, the oldest child, usually there's there's a selected child for some reason. Sometimes it's the oldest child that is sort of given this responsibility. Maybe they're seen as gifted. Maybe they're seen as some sort of um, special child that they feel that the parent feels like they can lean on for emotional or tangible support. So one of the challenges with all of this, obviously, is that I think in the last, when, I think it was when Easter came around, I recently did some research into like the origins of Easter and why it's even called that and stuff like that. And um, I came across this idea that, that kids being kids is a new thing, still relatively new, like 17th century, new, the modern version of kids being kids. Whereas in the past, you know, kids were always trained to be adults. And in essence, kids are, you know, training to be adults, but the, there has been this role reversal where now we're finally allowing kids to be more kids and play and receive as opposed to immediately having to, to give to adults. And that's in one, one essence, a thing that I've been learning is that um, similar to an episode I did recently, where I talked about kind of paying it forward emotionally and, um, you know, uh, making sure that your, your kids are being taken care of and to the best of your ability, that that's kind of a, that's still kind of a new thing. And uh, obviously a lot of this is um, you know, there's psychological studies being hap- happening all the time and new understandings. And, um, and as a result, there are a lot of people dealing with their own traumas. And then when you're dealing with your own traumas, it's a challenge because it can feel very lonely, especially if you're someone who is, who, who maybe can't confide in, in your parents about something like this, and then you're having to go and be a parent yourself. And maybe you then turn to your kids and you kind of end up doing the same thing. So um, I want to talk about some of that in the next few episodes. Um, This first one is just going to be an article from psychology today that is called, Did You Have to Grow Up Too Soon? Healing from the Trauma of Parentification. And I thought this was really good because another aspect of all of this, in my mind, for me and my story, which I'll comment on as I read, um, is that I've been learning a lot about the Enneagram as I do Enneagram work for a client of mine. And the Enneagram in general is a way of understanding whether or not you had um, ego consolidation when you were a kid. So a lot of, a lot of teachers say that, that your Enneagram type is formed when you were a kid. I think some of the newer thinking is that you're born with your type, but when you were a kid, it's a matter of whether or not that type has been honored and you've been able to develop what you need to develop within that personality type. And then sometimes we experience trauma that maybe has us grab a hold onto that type a little bit too intensely. And then it becomes difficult to let go, especially as you become an adult and you're trying to operate in different modes or communicate with different people or to, to, to become, uh, you know, the best version of yourself that, you know, you're realizing that there's some, some wounding related to that, that is maybe keeping you from, from letting go of that initial fixation. So for me, I'm an Enneagram one, possibly social one or sexual one, uh, which are the instincts or subtypes of each type, um, which I'm not going to go into. But social, social one basically means that I kind of feel more comfortable sharing vulnerabilities or how I feel or, or even um, being amongst a group like that, you know, or, or talking to a group in my case as a one. So one of my growth paths is towards Enneagram seven, which is kind of a loosening up. It's a, uh, mental usage of the mind to always find optimism and joy and more positive things and fun. And, um, sevens themselves can overdo that and ignore, you know, kind of the glass half empty side of life or even the practical side of life. And that creates its own problems. But as a one, I'm far too rigid and have been in a lot of my life. And in relation to this parentification stuff, I've, I've had to kind of tighten up as a result of, of making up for some of the emotional lackings in my uh, upbringing. So that's one of the, the challenges is that I'm having a hard time for myself learning how to let go and play because there is this sort of trauma response or this, this feeling in me that if I let go, that everything's going to fall apart, that, um, that, that everything around me is going to fail without my, uh, without my uh, presence or without not even presence, without my active involvement, without me, having such control over everything. Right. And part of that is me, you know, I mean, all of it is me having to work through my relationship with that. But part of it is also me having to, um, acknowledge that, um, you know, it's going to be hard work for me to do because I think one of the things that we can default to is once we learn about a trauma related to parents or a former spouse or something like that, our immediate thing is to go to them and try to yell at them or try to fix them when that you know that ship has probably already sailed. And honestly, that's for them to work out. So when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm talking about my relationship to it, and uh, not by any means creating an excuse because you know generational trauma is a real challenge that I think a lot of us are dealing with um, uh, at each, you know, generational level. And with each new generation, we learn more and more about how we can end some of those cycles on individual levels. Right. And some are, some people are doing great and that's awesome. And if you're doing great, maybe you don't need this, but the part of the three part series in this is going to be all about basically covering the diagnosis of this, like what is happening here And I mentioned the Enneagram because I think each Enneagram type is represented. And while I'm not going to go into too much detail, while I'm reading, I may point out that that's kind of an Enneagram one behavior or six behavior or something like that in response to this kind of trauma. And the second episode will be a little bit more diagnosis, but starting to touch on some of the generational uh, trauma parts of it. And then the third one is going to be about healing. And then there's going to be some healing throughout as well. Um, But this is all referencing a couple of articles. And then I'll put those articles in the descriptions of these episodes so that you can read them yourselves. But this is really like me reading them and providing commentary. So uh, I think that's all of the preamble that I can think of um, starting from. So let's... Uh, let's dive in. So this this first article is from um, Emma Lowe, and she is a writer for Psychology Today, or at least a contributor. This was written in December 12th of 2019, and it's, uh, Did You Have to Grow Up Too Soon? Healing from the Trauma of Parentification. So uh, our experiences in childhood, be it an acute trauma or h- hidden chronic trauma, could impact us for life. Things happened years ago can affect relationships, self-esteem, and quality of life today. One form of childhood trauma that is rarely talked about but remains insidious and toxic is parentification. Unlike physical abuse, parentification is chronic and invisible. This, however, does not mean it is any less wounding. More and more research has found that parentification could lead, leave us scarred for life. For instance, parentified uh, children are more likely to experience depression as adults. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I I've was searching for personal links between my own personal cyclothymia and um, my relationship with my dad and my parents. And um, I was recently watching an episode of uh, MasterChef Legends, which is like the latest season. And Aron Sanchez hugged this kid. He was like 20 years old. And the kid didn't pass the audition test, but Aron Sanchez said, like, I'm going to give you a scholarship. I'm going to take care of you. And he came, went around the table and he hugged him and he gave him an earnest hug. And he said, like, you know, I, I've got you. And that sent an intense shock in my heart because I, I that, that left me feeling like, oh, I want that, <laughs> you know, um, and that led me down this rabbit hole. So I'm going to keep reading. Parentification constitutes a form of role reversal in the family when a child is made to take on parental responsibilities. They may have to, aside from taking care of themselves, be their parents' confidants, their siblings' uh, caretaker, the family mediator, etc. It is a form of of boundary violation because the innocent childhood that is once entitled to, that one is entitled to is robbed away. Forms of parentification. Parentification can occur in two ways emotional parentification and instrumental parentification. Emotional parentification is when a child is forced to meet the emotional needs of their parents, siblings, or other family members on a regular daily basis. Some parents hurt their children so, not maliciously but inadvertently through the lack of personal stability, maturity, and emotional health. Childish and emotional underdeveloped parents uh, tend to be preoccupied with their own life's tasks or are constantly overwhelmed with their own dis- distress. and do not have any bandwidth to see their child or children's wants or needs. So I I think that's important. I want to stop there for a second. I think that's important to point out that that this is not always a, a malicious thing. This is not about a parent who is out to get you. This is about almost a response to their own wounding and responding to you, like in a way trying to get from you what they didn't get from their parents. And um, that's something to both have a little bit of of empathy for, but not so much empathy that you give them the excuse of how they traded you essentially. Um, So to keep reading sensitive children, empaths and gifted children are especially prone to be parentified. Uh, They are by nature, more empathic, responsive and intuitive than others. They're keenly aware of other people's moods and nuances in their environments. They see, hear, sense, and feel things everyone else is missing, including their parents' unsaid grief and any toxic dynamic in the family system. Nothing slips through their radar, and they simply they feel deeply into others' pain. Thus, they pick up on their caregiver's distress and vulnerabilities, even when no one has explicitly asked them to. Even only inadvertently, it was, the, it was for others to slip into relying on their soothing presence. The toxic dynamic can even include what is known as covert or emotional incest, where a parent looks to their child for the support and connection they would typically get from a partner. Perhaps the parent is trapped in a dysfunctional marriage and feels lonely and empty in his or her own life. In need of a surrogate partner, the sensitive child is used to fill the gaps in their lives. They may or may not involve any overt sexual behaviors, touch, or abuse, but the emotional closeness is suffocating so to to reference that too um i myself you know there's a reason i'm doing this podcast is like i i do feel even though i'm an intp (laughs) i i feel emotionally sensitive and uh intuitively aware of the patterns of behavior of people around me i think as a one i'm also very uh behavior aware and behavior focused so i found myself acutely aware of those happenings as i am still to this day, very acutely aware of like what's happening behaviorally amongst people. And, um, I think in a lot of ways, this podcast is a, an extension of my continuing to be that parent, um, for people. And, um, in a lot of ways, this podcast has given me an outlet, but at the same time, maybe further perpetuates, my, my, my parent role. Right. I mean, which is different a little bit now as an adult, I'm only almost 36 years old and I'm about to be a stepdad of two kids, which is also why I'm thinking about this stuff. And I am very much aware that, you know, I am a dad and, um, you know, that I have a lot of experience with that as a result of all of this, And I can hopefully put that into good use. And I'm trying to do that for a lot of my younger fellow INTPs, particularly young men who my audience is probably about 60, 40 in in favor of men um, in terms of the audience and kind of wanting to give what I didn't get in a lot of ways. So that's a lot of why I do this podcast and why I'm trying to pull on some more of these, these heavier mental health issues while I'm not a therapist and I'm not someone that, I want anyone to lean on for their emotional support. That's the balance I'm trying to make in that I'm kind of broadcasting from like the middle of nowhere in a way. And if you hear this radio signal, then you can kind of take it and learn from it. But in a lot of ways I'm trying to find my own boundary of not being accessible to someone who, who maybe wants me to be that because I I don't want to step over a boundary and be everyone's dad (laughs) because I've already been, I've been too much of a dad and not enough of a child. If that makes sense. And, uh, trying to find that balance. And, um, that's part of my Enneagram seven growth too, is like playing more and trying to find a way to regain some of those missing elements. So to keep reading, for example, the parents, uh, might tell the child about their sexual frustration, cry excessively in front of the child, sleep in the same bed with the child slash adolescent to avoid intimacy with their partner or make sexualized remarks about the child's developing body. Usually enmeshment is involved. The child is made to feel guilty if they want to be left alone. They feel obligated to meet their parents' needs at the drop of a hat and be responsible for their happiness. Um, So the reason I'm reading this article is because if I just share my story, I feel like that's too specific. And also sometimes my parents do listen to this podcast. So I, I, am not trying to villainize them because my, it's like my entire childhood was not negative. I'm also part of my growth is trying to hold on to some of the good things. A lot of the good things uh, though, without nor ignoring the, the difficult things and the things that affect me to this day. Um, So I'm reading some of this because maybe some of the specifics of this affect you in a way that you could be aware of and um, can help you out. And then I'll just try to reference some of the things that are part of me and my story. Um, so instrumental material, physical parentification is like emotional parentification, but in terms of physical and material aspects, parents who either shy away from or have no care or consideration for practical duties and responsibilities can push their child to take on the roles that they are neglecting. Children in this type of parentification are forced to become instrumental to the family and homes, practical survival. Imagine a child who has bombarded every day with the responsibilities to tuck in sisters or brothers or read them bedtime stories, organize drinks or food, wash up dishes, or a myriad of housework. When burdening with that many responsibilities, self-care tends to go out the window. If the child continues to attend school, they may be withdrawn, unkempt, uh, visibly exhausted, having to take care of everything from a young age. Children subject to this, uh, children subject to this type of parentification can uh, develop extreme anxiety and other nervous compulsive disorders they may also become codependent in their future relationships. Uh, so the aspects that I kind of relate to, to what I just read, um, were just basically being exhausted in school. I kind of didn't give a give, give an effort in school um, because my home life required a lot of thinking and effort. And um, there was a lot of anxiety around like when the next shoe was going to drop, basically, um, without getting into too many specifics. Um, what happens to the parent- parentified child in most cases of parentification there's no physical abuse or lack of love the parents love their child but only with limited capacity the harm is usually done out of not of not out of malicious intent but personal vulnerabilities i'm going to read that one more time because i think that's super important in most cases of parentification there is no physical abuse or lack of love the parents love their child, but only with the limited capacity. The harm is usually done, not out of malicious intent, but personal vulnerabilities. So I wanted to highlight that because um, I've noticed Molly and I have talked about this recently that we've noticed that a lot of our generation as millennials um, and subsequently some of Gen Z are there's this trauma bonding element that's happening because a lot of us are becoming more aware of uh, woundings, of um, wanting to improve our uh, psychological relationship to ourselves, that in the process of that, there's also a lot of over-identifying with certain traumas. And the best way to over-identify with certain traumas is to have someone to blame for your traumas. And that's the challenge here is that What I'm talking about here when I'm referencing this or talking about parentification, this is not about pointing fingers. This is not about finding someone to blame. This is not about you sending this article to your parents and saying, look what you did to me. Like (laughs) this is not at all what this is about. This is about you and your understanding of yourself and all of the nodes that have led to who you are and why you have done some of the things that you do or, or continue to do some of the things that you do or how you can break the cycle for yourself. And instead of focusing so much backward, that you can focus forward and look at your kids and, you know, treat them better than you were treated in some ways. And that how you were treated is not always about intention. You know, the intention may have been for a lot of our parents, to do the best that they can, just as we have the intention of doing the best that we can. I'm sure there are things that we're going to screw up. And in 30 years time, you know, our kids are going to be like, you let me play too much. (laughs) I don't know, whatever it is. Um, And there's going to be something that happens. Right. And you're going to realize something. And, um, and, and particularly with different cultures, like I'm, my parents are Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican. um, There are a lot of, people who listen to this from all over the world who each culture has its own different relationship to like what it means to be a parent. And, um, you know, sometimes that has an effect also in terms of the amount of emotional literacy that gets passed down from parent to child. And, uh, I think there's, there's room for having some grace for that. There's room for having a little bit of, of empathy for, or even just, objective understanding that that was the case, that because, I mean, particularly with, with our parents, parents, our grandparents, a lot of them were the silent generation and, or or the generation before who had to deal with a lot of atrocities that had happened in early, the you know, early 20th century. So, you know, it's, it's important to in my eyes, create that distinction between our idealism related to our family or our parents and what actually happened and why it happened. And again, not to make excuses for them and to give us further reasons to keep babying them. Um, but for reasons for us to acknowledge that that was, they were trying to give some love and they just didn't know how. And that's very different than someone trying to abuse you because they want a sense of control or power or something like that. Um, so those are important distinctions, I think, for, for you to perhaps search for within your own story. Um, and again, I think therapists are, are kind of amazing for that sort of thing. So to keep reading. However, when a child is supposed to go through their natural cycles of development and self-evolution is forced to grow up too quickly, there is a cost. Consequences are not just physical, it is also mental, emotional, and spiritual. Parentified children are not given the time, care, and uh, love, emotional support, grounding, or security needed to develop and thrive. Without a role model, they are deprived of the opportunity to learn through observation and guardianship. For the most part, they are expected to keep it together and never show signs of distress. If they were to be needy and vulnerable, they are either ignored or sometimes punished. Eventually, they internalize the message that having needs and desires is not acceptable. They become ashamed of their vulnerabilities, and eventually emotional numbness and self-denial become their second nature. So self-denial is interesting in terms of its language because um, self-denial is something that eight nines and ones in the anagram typically do. So eights are, um, eights, nines, and ones are in the body center, the centers of intelligence. There's three centers of intelligence when it comes to the Enneagram. There's the body, eight, nine, and one, the heart, two, three, and four, and then the head, five, six, and seven. And these types are, um, separated by sort of the, the main focus of the body, right? And it's been, there's been recent studies that have identified that there are neurons all throughout our body, um, heart uh, heart and mind connections and then also gut and mind connections. So when I'm saying gut center, that's sort of like your gut having a lot of intelligence that, that is speaking to your mind and giving your mind instruction in a way, same with the heart. It's a very heart focus. And now the goal of the Enneagram is to kind of find some, or, or the goal of parental or, or rather a personal development is to find more nuance and, access other centers of intelligence. So if you're a head type, finding a way to gain some more body intelligence or to trust body intelligence or heart intelligence, if you're a heart type to not be so in your heart all the time and find more head-based or body-based thinking, right? So for me as a one, one being self-denial, a form of self-denial through anger, through behavioral judgment and um, through my own behavioral tempering in a way, that my form of self-denial is, is just that, is, is being a good person. And that's usually by an external measure of what that means. And um, so uh, they become ashamed of their vulnerabilities and eventually emotional numbness and self-denial become their second nature. So as a one, my connection points in the arrow lines are to seven and four. Now, seven and four are the two most self-focused Enneagram types. Now, while a seven and a four may need to work on being maybe a little less self focused and trying to give more care and empathy to others, I actually need to do the opposite. I need to find a way to be a little bit more self focused. You know, like what is actually fun for me? What is interesting for me when I go to seven? And then when I go to four, what is my honest emotional expression? What makes me me? What is unique about me? What is unique about my, my creative ability or my, my unique existence. And so as a one, when I'm in this one space, I'm kind of serving others, or I'm, I'm trying to temper myself in a way that is sort of acceptable. Whereas when I'm in seven, I kind of just do whatever I want. And, you know, I, I, I need to not care so much. And then in four, you know, emotionally express myself and kind of not care about how that affects others. Just, just do my own thing, you know, in healthy ways, there are healthy versions of each type. It's not about just taking on general characteristics, right? So sadly, even the circumstances are no longer the same. They are not able to discard the impact of being parentified, um, to survive in a home with immature and needy parents, children adopt various survival strategies. Sometimes these coping mechanisms follow them for life and become a core part of their personality. So, um, I'm going to take a break, but after the break, we're going to go into basically this is kind of the Enneagram section, and I'll kind of point out which Enneagram types are a part of this expression. Do you like books? What about books that read to you? Not the books themselves. That would be interesting if books had voices. It would be like, once upon a, a time. You don't know if the book, what, what voices the books would have. Who, who knows? Sometimes the books are read by authors. Sometimes they're read by uh, voice actors. I've mentioned it before The Martian's one of my favorite because the voice actor is pretty fantastic. Uh, but if you want to go investigate the world of spoken books or weird books with faces, I don't know what I'm talking about. AudibleTrial.com slash dopamine, D O P E A M I N E. Get your first ebook for free and then uh, pay monthly to get uh, as many ebooks as you can muster. So go ahead and do that thing. AudibleTrial.com slash D O P E A M I N E. And that supports the channel. So let's get back to the show. All right. So welcome back we're going to start getting into some of the strategies that children tend to use when going through this parentification. So in the article I'm reading from psychology today, um, to survive in a home with immature needy parents, children and various uh, adopt various survival strategies. Sometimes these coping mechanisms follow them for life and become a core part of their personality. So, There's some of these that link to Enneagram types, so I'll refer to them a little bit. So some children use jokes and laughter to diffuse conflicts and to disguise sadness. This is kind of an Enneagram 7 thing. As adults, they become the class clown, the joker, the soul of a party. However, they're not able to get in touch with their true selves and have others uh, see their sorrow. Underneath the facade, they are lonely. And that's sort of the Enneagram 7 aspect is like there's a lot of trying to keep the glass half full, um, a lot of effort put into that, a lot of mental effort put into that. And um, you see that as always trying to keep things light and fun and happy and um, uh, avoiding a lot of pain and sadness uh, as a result. Some children become extremely compliant. They hope that they become the quiet. um, They hope that that by becoming the quiet one, they can escape conflicts and blame more of an Enneagram nine um, tactic. Some children become helpers in the family. Enneagram two, they believe they must serve, help rescue and help rescue everyone in need. As adults, they may find that they have confused sense of self-identity beyond the helper role. They may be people pleasers and are not able to set boundaries. Um, so that's two. Um, my One of my parents is a nine, one is a two. And um, so there's some of those behaviors that they had to do as adults, in response to their own families that kind of affected me, particularly the two relationship. Um, I, I have a hard time asking for help as a result of this in a lot of ways. Um, I'm hopefully finding a way that I can talk about it in the future, but I don't really feel necessarily comfortable enough to share all of those details just yet. Um, some people leave home early to escape the traumatized home, but painful memories never leave them. Uh, that could be an eight choice to leave. Could be maybe a four choice to leave. Um, they become wary of relationships of any kind and are always afraid of being trapped by a suffocating partner. Yeah. It sounds more eight-ish. as a result. They avoid intimacy altogether, despite a yearning for it. You know, uh, eights don't necessarily want to be surrounded or feel weak. Um, so there's this kind of obsession with power. Um, as I mentioned, like self-denial and this self-denial is, you know, becoming powerful. Some children shoulder all responsibilities diligently and become the protector of the family. They have developed a hypervigilant nervous system and are unable to relax even when the threat is no longer there. As adults, they are highly perfectionistic and anxious, picking holes in themselves or those around them. They have an inner critic that is always complaining they are not doing things correctly. But they must improve and do better. They tend to blame themselves for everything and that goes, uh, that goes wrong and constantly try to fix things that cannot be fixed. Enneagram 1 that's me. That's my exact thing. And it's interesting that that's the longest description so far, (laughs) because that, that describes, you know, what I've had to do. And especially as an adult. Um, And in my former relationship, I I experienced some of that as well. This sort of expectation of not necessarily being a partner, but kind of being a parent to my partner. And um, part of that is, is me and my Enneagram oneness being willing to take on that role. Um, But also, my partner or my parents in the past, not having been, um, you know, the, the roles that they needed to play in a sense, if your, your parents tended to only recognize what you do without valuing who you were, you would have learned to build self-esteem based on something external. You, um, yeah, you might have an inner critic that is highly demanding, always pushing you towards the next goalpost in the hope that it will bring you the love that you want. That's very Enneagram 3-ish about going towards the next goal and achievement-focused. No matter how much you have achieved on the outside, however, you are left feeling empty on the inside. Um, Again, that's very Enneagram 3 who goes towards achievement in order to um, be recognized for achievements and kind of seeing that as a replacement for love. If your parents suffered from physical or mental illness and relied on, relied on you for comfort or and care, the helper role may have dominated your entire being. Your sense of self did not get fully developed before you needed to care for others. So as a result, you don't know how you are. Um, you don't know who you are except when you are doing things for others. As an adult, you may be running around meeting everyone else's needs. You may be close to burning out trying to take care of your family and colleagues, and feel no one is there for you. Um, if your parents are, were reckless, uh, they may have created a cha- chaotic and unstable environment for you and your siblings. As a result, you may have trained yourself to always be on guard, watching out for the next sign of danger. You are unable to, unable to relax, trust others, or let go of control. When you are under stress, you can get paranoid about things, even when you know that they are illogical. You are you overly cautious. Your overly cautious tendency. May also stop you from reaching the next level in your professional life, as you often held in an, you are often held in analysis paralysis. This is a very Enneagram Six. A lot of self-doubting, a lot of um, fear, concern, asking questions, uncertainty. Uh, that's sort of staples of Enneagram Six. And uh, if your parents have behaved like bullies, you would have learned early in life a distorted definition of power. You believe you are—you can only count on yourself and that the world is a winner-take-all place. You put a strong front, but others have find it difficult to come close to you. Even with your significant others, you struggle to let your guard down. As a result, in the invisible castle you have built your, to keep yourself safe, you feel alone in the world. Um, some of that is is kind of um, Enneagram 5-ish as well. So you can see a little bit of each type kind of represented here. I think there was a four at some point, but um, I'm not sure. But, you know, maybe you heard it when you were listening to it. So let's get into the healing and integration part of this, um, which I think is important. So first of all, I need to take a breath and a drink of water. So take a breather while you're listening. Okay. Because this is a lot. This is a lot for me to talk about and express. Um, I can feel the heaviness in in my heart, but I've been heavy hearted this week, kind of as a result of this, but in general dealing with kind of the mental health crash. And um, I've just been feeling like a lot of this is a weight that has been um, deferred. I've kind of just pushed this off. I've had to deal with, um, had a lot of deal with my own religious trauma growing up. Um, not necessarily because I was religious, but I was atheist. And, um, there's, there's some stuff tied to that, that I had to deal with growing up and, uh, I feel better in those fronts. I I have no ill will towards religion more so sometimes do have some troubles with people's behavior associated with religion, but that's a whole different thing. And some stuff related to my previous marriage and some of those, um, some healing required there. And I feel like there are all these areas in my my life where I've done this healing and growth. And here we are, we're, you know, when you're digging, you hit something hard every once in a while. And this is like the next hard thing which is dealing with this sort of parent child relationship, not only with how to deal with it in the present and whether or not to talk about it. Cause I don't necessarily feel like it's appropriate to talk about it to, to my parents necessarily, because they may get defensive and, and all of that. And it's not necessarily their problem. It's my problem. Their problems are their problems. My problems are my problems. And you know, the kids problems are my problems, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I'm trying to support and um, for the future and trying to also support myself, but also being willing to ask for help, which is going to get into the healing and integration part. So let's, let's start reading that. So fortunately, there are many healing processes and routes to wholeness and recovery for a young adult or adult who has been parentified as a child. The first step is to tell your story. By doing this, you acknowledge the harsh reality of what has happened. This is sometimes an arduous process, as you might have have learned, through social conditioning or out of your survival instinct, to suppress your memories and feelings. When someone asks you about your childhood, you struggle to recall any episode. Whenever you are prompted to speak about your parents, you feel guilty, which I do often. Uh, You justify all adverse events that have happened in your childhood and feel the need to excuse your parents' neglect or abuse. You may even feel bad about feeling bad. If what you have been through was mainly emotional parentification, then the lack of clear, visible signs of abuse makes it harder for you to speak up. After having carried the burden for so many years, suppression has become your normal. And acknowledging that something might be wrong could be the hardest first step. However, acknowledgement of reality is the first step to healing and recovery. You are accepting not the injustice, but the truth of your story. As you see reality for what it was, you no longer invest extra energy in defending, suppressing, or rationalizing. In contrast, if you continue to live in denial, your mental energy and life force could would be spent in suppressing the pain that was there rather than healing what needs to be healed. So I'm going to take a break for a second. Um, what I'm learning for myself is that I've given myself this job or this role. And I need to let go of that job or role. Sometimes I've had, um, a parent call me and it feels like a therapy session more than it feels like a connection session. And I'm needing to set that boundary and say that I'm not your therapist and I'm not here. I can't help you with that. Um, and that's some of the challenge that I've had with coaching. I, I, I'm feeling like I haven't been wanting to do coaching because I've kind of done it all my life. And I feel like I'm, I'm kind of getting tired of that role in a way. So I'm, I'm letting go of that role a little bit, <clears throat> which is putting some of that energy into the podcast a little bit too. <clears throat> and um, so, so setting that boundary is going to be important. And sometimes, you need to let go in order to let people grow. You know, if they're going to grow in the way that they need to. Um but but mostly it's for me, it's for myself and I'm trying to accept that like self-focused nature of this, which is really hard because even culturally being self-focused is not always acceptable. You're seen as narcissist or selfish or whatever. There's all this there's all this negative language about caring about yourself which is bullshit, frankly. Um, so, um, focusing on yourself and your, your self needs, you know, for me, uh, focusing on those things is, is going to be important for my growth. And that means setting those boundaries. And that means, um, letting go of, of that role of the sort of mental, emotional caretaker or support system. Right. So, um, that's hard because it's going to involve some rejection. And um, I think any growth is going to have some sort of consequence. So it's not going to be easy. If you make a decision for yourself in particular, other people aren't going to like it, no matter who they are, family, friends, spouse, whatever. If you make a choice that is for you, that happens to feel detrimental to them, there's going to be an impact there. There's going to be a ripple effect. That's just systems thinking. That's just what happens. And you yourself have to be flat-footed and prepared for that moment because you're going to have to stand your ground. Um, And the second you don't stand your ground, you're right back in it, right? You're swept away by the waves again. And um, for me, that's, that's what I'm really trying to do is needing to stay that like, look, I'm trying to focus forward. I'm trying to focus on the kids. I'm trying to live my life. I'm trying to heal from my past stuff and trying to just be the best person that I can for myself. And that's totally valid and that's totally okay. So I'm going to keep reading. Since you had to grow up too early, too soon, you might be trained to become hyper-independent you are incredibly self-reliant that it may feel impossible to be vulnerable or seek help from others. Yes. <laughs> uh, being highly self-reliant was your only option in a household with only emotional vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable adults, but it is a strategy that no longer works for you. It keeps you in isolation and unable to connect with others, which is tricky as an adult. Um, therefore changing, challenging yourself to connect with others authentically would also um, would also be one of the most potent ways to heal the thoughts, feelings, impressions, and emotions buried within are waiting to be heard once and for all. So this is another reason I'm, I'm kind of stepping away from coaching is because I'm needing to take that time. And I'm wanting to take that time to build authentic connections with people, not just my students or listeners, which I appreciate you. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear your story and share your story. Um, but building personal bonds, you know, people that I care about in person, obviously with Molly, but then people that we're connected to in real life and, um, having more of those intimate conversations. Like it's actually easier for me to talk about my personal stuff publicly than it is to do it privately. Um, that's part of the social instinct is this ability to like, I feel safer kind of camouflaged in the crowd in a way. Whereas, you know, if I share my story and, intimately with one person and they are not into it or they, or or they start to attack me or something, I feel vulnerable. Whereas if I'm amongst a group or sharing my story on a podcast, chances are at least one of you has got my back. (laughs) Right. So to me that just feels safer. That's my sort of internal instinctual rationalization for that. And, um, So reaching out and creating the podcast has probably been good for me. It feels like it has been good for me, but also um, building more authentic bonds with people who are willing and able to help me without expectations of reciprocation. Um, Cause that's one thing that's been a part of my past. Unfortunately is, is this, I have a hard time accepting help because I assume that there's another shoe that's going to drop or that there's an expectation that there, or that there's a, um a bill that comes due, right? And um this this is specifically connected to Enneagram two. Like I thought I was a five because a lot of fives feel this way about everyone. Whereas for me, I only specifically feel this about twos. And subsequently that does affect some of my relationship to other people. And accepting help from other people is going to be a big part of my um my growth going forward. Psychotherapy uh, self therapy, and nature therapy can all be useful adjunct, adjuncts to your integration process. Telling your story to a trusted other in a sacred space means it is no longer festering in your psyche. If you don't feel that therapy or counseling in the traditional sense is for you, you can buy a journal or engage in an art form through art, music, and literature. you get to channel your sadness and connect with those who share a uh, shared a similar experience. So much noise outside. jeez. The self oops, apologies. The self-compassion self-compassion is essential an essential ingredient to your process. Before you move into extending compassion and forgiveness for others, we must first exercise self-compassion. As a parentified child, you likely live with a harsh inner critic who continuously says in your mind that you are not doing enough. And that when bad things happen, it is your fault. You may have internalized shame and guilt from not being able to fulfill the impossible demands that were put on you, making room for self-directed kindness can significantly help you make your sense of experience, make sense of your experience and shine a light on even the darkest of places. So I mentioned the Enneagram stuff because your parents also have Enneagram types and they themselves have fixations. We all have sort of focal points of attention And sometimes it's really, really hard to see past that focal point of attention, right? So you as a person that's listening to this podcast are at least on the precipice of trying to be more conscious of your, you know, your, your challenges or the way your mind works or anything like that, right? So you have a leg up in that sense. They may not have gone that territory. They may just be operating, you know, as the mask that we all wear Whereas you are starting to get to know the mask and are starting to learn how to take it off and put it on or anything like that. So each of us have different personalities and those personalities have these focuses of attention that can be really hard to, to distance ourselves from. So self-compassion is important because each person is going to have something that they try to get out of others to bend towards the way that we think or what makes us feel safe. Cause in essence, a lot of it is about personally feeling safe. And uh, you know, it is a really difficult feeling to go through some of this stuff and especially related to parents, because like your parents are in a lot of ways are natural tether to this idea of not feeling alone. And when you start to realize that there were maybe a lot of issues there, there's kind of an, a detachment that happens. There's this feeling of feeling alone, like you're by yourself, like you're not, you're the only one having to deal with this. And um, first of all, uh, that's simply not true. Um, we're all like the uniqueness and the specificity of what you're dealing with, and the more nooks and crannies you get into. Yes, there is a very unique code there that is unique to your life and your experience, but I find that what binds us together is this feeling of aloneness. <laughs> it's kind of strange, um, that the more we feel alone individually, the more we feel together. Let me try to re- reiterate that, that, you know, we're born alone and we die alone in essence. Um, we have connections to family, to friends, but we're born into this world where our parents are already dealing with a lot of stuff, you know, they've been dealing with their own histories and we're now in this world and getting to know all of that stuff and simultaneously growing our own history and growing our own future. And there is an aloneness to that because everyone's focusing on their own shit and at some point there's this feeling of, or at least in in my view, there's this feeling of realizing that everyone's doing this and that it kind of makes you feel distant, but at the same time, it's because everyone's focusing on themselves that there's this kind of beauty that we're all in it together. Is that, I don't know, that might not make fully sense, but I'll try to reiterate that in the future. <laughs> um, um, so see if you can imagine yourself to be surrounded by people who love and support you and what they might say to you. If you feel stuck on words, recall the body memories, what it feels like to be held by love. If you have little experience of being loved by life, loved in life, imagine what you would say to a person or a child that you love, then direct the tender feelings towards yourself. See if you can connect the, to the innermost core of yourself. In spiritual traditions, it is believed that in all of us, there is a self this, is part of us, uh, this part of us has never been wounded and remain in divine perfection, despite what has happened to us. Even that part of us is hidden under layers of trauma. It is still capable of qualities such as compassion, empathy, and self-love. Even if there is no one external to provide you with the guidance and care you deserve, you can consult your own highest self. Remember, you were a completely innocent child uh, who came into the world with the hope to be loved and cared for like a child. Even when your actual childhood was painful, it is never too late to offer yourself the love that you deserve. Healing from a parentified childhood is possible by virtue of that deep inner strength that developed in spite of all of the challenges you already have shown that you are, you have the ability to stand and fight to survive in the face of adversity and your strength will no doubt be what brings you to a liberated future. So That's a lot to take in, but I think that's powerful to a start to think about the love that you deserve as a human being. I think we all deserve that. I think, um, when someone starts to defeat themselves and maybe you've done this to yourself, that one of the things, I don't even remember where I heard this from, but I heard someone say once, what makes you so special? that you believe that you're not deserving of love, right? <laughs> uh, the essence, the idea of essence and self is sort of this like pure state of spirit. You can refer to it as uh, divine or, you know, whatever you have any kind of connection to spiritually. Um, but the self is underneath this idea of of, of flesh and bone and skin and brain and trauma and heart and gut. It, it's like the collection of all of the essence of who we are. It is something that cannot be physically wounded and even emotionally wounded. It is the kind of sacred aspect of who we are as a person. It's untouchable. And what we're trying to do as we start to work through some of these wounds or what I feel like I'm trying to do is access some of that essence. And to get to know that purest form of self, not this perfect form of self. And this is not something that you access via something like suicide. I'm not saying that you're a ghost. I'm saying that you as a living person have essence and that by working through some of these elements or traumas or, or having these talks with yourself, where you're uh, giving yourself love and support and imagining people around you like kind of hugging you and surrounding you and cradling you and and caring for you and providing for you the things that were missing, um, that have been missing, that it's not a question of deserve. It's not a question of worth. It's not a question of value. It's just a question of is. It's just not even a question. I don't know why I said it It's just a matter of is. Because you are essence. You are worthy. There's like, again, that's not even a question. It's not about value. It just simply is. And there are people in your life or have loved you even in the moments when someone has given you their full attention and then eventually broke up or something like that. There were moments, there were sparks that someone gave their full attention to you. And that's beautiful. You know, even your, your parents, there were probably, or could have been moments where they, their intentions are beautiful, even if the actions were not. And I think it's important for myself to acknowledge my own needs and wants and desires and to recognize that I am a human being that is deserving of love from a father, from a mother, from a spouse, from my kids, even though they, they, I don't, they don't owe me anything. And that's really the thing that i think is going to be the most helpful for anyone out there who is a young parent or someone who's new to parenting I, i've been a parent on and off for a long time i've had partners who have had kids in the past um, i've had a son for a few years and now i'm about to have two stepkids kids um, that i've essentially had for a few years now uh, unofficially but you know molly and I are getting married on july 10th and it will be official and um part of why I'm trying to do this work is because if I'm continuing to love myself and to show that I can ask for help and to show that I can have fun and to show that I can smile and show that I can play and that I can like let things go and, um, and, and be adaptable and deal with difficult things and deal with easy things and demonstrate that to them and then also give to them, without any sort of stipulation or reciprocity they don't owe me anything they're here they're alive that's amazing and i feel like that's one of the challenges that i've had to deal with is this feeling of owing someone something by getting their help and if i'm accessing essence i'm deserving of receiving that love again i I, it's hard for me to even let go of the words to see like deserving and love and worthy and value. Cause it's just kind of how we think about ourselves and I'm trying to move past that. It's just, it just is. And there are people that care about me and it's about taking that extrinsic extra extrinsic. I don't even know if that's the right word, but external love and channeling that from within myself and letting that propagate through me and outward towards everything that i do so ooh, this was a lot but like this is just where i've been um so i appreciate you for listening and um there's going to be two more parts to this i'm not exactly sure when i'm doing them uh maybe early next week but i have kind of an article that has the two final parts sort of covered. So we're going to talk a little bit more about diagnosis in the next section that relates to generational stuff. And then the last one, I think there's a big section around healing, and I want to focus a little bit more attention exclusively on healing for the third episode in this little series. So you don't have to necessarily tell me your story, your traumas, or anything like that. I'd love to know what you love about yourself. You can leave it in the comments. You can leave a voice message here on anchor anchorfm slash dopamine D O P E A M I N E. Um, I'd love to hear your story. Um, but I hope this helps and, um, if anything, it helps me. And that's really why I'm doing it. Cause I want to do it and I want to talk it out and I want to work it out. So this is what's in my brain and my heart and my body. And, um, I hope it helps you in some sort of a way. So we have a new website. Well, it's, it's our teachable account, but I have a new URL dopamine.school where all the personality related courses are there. If you want to go check that out, I have been seen out AKA Christian Rivera, and I hope you take care of yourself and uh, show yourself some love in the mirror today. And uh, I'll catch you next time on dopamine. See ya. Just a quick reminder that we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash dopamine, D-O-P-E-A-M-I-N-E. That's a place where you can support the channel financially and join our community to be able to connect with others who are trying to grow in their personal health, personal growth journey and support dopamine through whatever financial means necessary. So it could be a small donation, big donation, whatever feels comfortable over at patreon.com slash dopamine.